Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network, New Books and Psychology podcast. My name is Karen Messina. I'm a psychologist, psychoanalyst, author, podcast host, and the new chair of the scholarship and writing section of the Department of Psychoanalytic Education, which is part of the American Psychoanalytic Association. The bigger news is today... I have a great pleasure, or is my great pleasure, to introduce a writer and scholar. His name is Austin Ratner. Austin grew up in the Cleveland area and attended the University of Michigan. He also received a medical degree from Johns Hopkins University. After medical school, he made an interesting switch and decided to become a fiction writer in the search of truth and beauty versus the medical route. So currently Austin has taken on a new role as the editor of the American Psychoanalyst magazine, also called TAP, and is doing a fantastic job with a new concept he and his team have developed. So I could say a lot more about Austin's many talents, but let's hear it from him. Uh, about his wishes to increase the visibility of psychoanalysis by broadening the scope of issues that psychoanalysis can actually help solve. So asked Austin, what are some of the key strategies you are trying to accomplish with this new design? Well, first of all, thank you for having me back on your your podcast. This is my second time here. Um, and I loved talking with you the first time. Um, and um, so the, stra- the so the strategies for um, the question was the strategies for bringing attention to psychoanalysis through tap. So it, the first thing that that I have tried to do is change the look of tap uh, to update it a bit um, and to reorient the content um, a little bit. Um, tap has had a long history before I became editor of publishing some great writing um, about psychoanalysis, but it was also a more inward facing publication, more, more like a, a association newsletter and um, and it, it, I don't think it had been updated in terms of its look for, for some time. It didn't really um, have a lot of visuals or any any art with it. So um, we decided to expand to full color. And um, the art director, who's a good friend of mine, Austin Hughes, has done an amazing job with the art. And um, he brought on Melissa Overton, who is the former creative director of the MoMA Design Store and, ex- and an experienced magazine designer. And she's she's also done just an amazing job at sort of um, making the, the pages of the magazine into something really dynamic and eye-catching and fresh looking. Um, and in terms of the content, um, uh, I've had a, I, I, I've had a couple different um, ideas that that I've begun to put into practice. Um, one of them w- was to hire some professional writers to do some of the writing. Um, and um, when possible to introduce the the journalists to psychoanalysts and um, and create some dialogue with the experts on psychoanalysis and then the experts at, um, at writing, especially for lay people. And the idea was to make TAP potentially of interest to people who don't already know about psychoanalysis, to try to use this as a vehicle for not just members of the American Psychoanalytic Association to talk to one another um, about their uh, very interesting work, but to share that interesting work 
and psychoanalytic perspectives with with a broader audience. So, um, so bringing in some professional writers was one strategy, and um, the choice of topics has also um, been a strategy to try to connect with certain uh, zeitgeisty uh subject matter with um some pop cultural subject matter um i interviewed the um the villain in the movie guardians of the galaxy part three um his name is chuck woody Awuji. he's a nigerian uh born actor who uh is also a member of the royal shakespeare company and he's he is he is absolutely uh, brilliant. And we had this amazing discussion about acting and acting in Marvel movies and the psychology of supervillains. We talked about Freud's paper um, on character types met with in psychoanalysis and how Freud talks about criminality from a sense of guilt. And, and Chuck was really into that idea in terms of getting into the psychology of, of a villain. So that's just one example of content that, um, you know, I thought could, could potentially have broader appeal. Now we have to build out our ability to, to let audiences know about TAP in the first place. And we're in the process of doing that and have various strategies for, for publicity, but we're, you know, we're only two issues in. Yeah, I think that it really is a, a great uh, asset to TAP that you, you really are a Freudian scholar. I mean, I, I'm sure that you read all volumes many times. I mean, that shows in your book, uh, your last book, I can't claim to have read the entire uh, standard edition, but I've read I've read a lot of it. I've read a lot of Freud. Well, in, in your book, uh, uh, Psychoanalysis and Version to Proof, it's clear that you, mm. you've read a lot. Mm-hmm. So that it's great that you can pull in some of Freud, Freud's ideas about culture, art, uh, in addition to psychoanalysis, literature. Yes. Uh, yeah, and we like to to sprinkle in as as pull quotes some of Freud's commentary on all on whatever we're because he talked about everything. I mean, yeah. his work touched on everything. So no matter what the topic is, you can find something interesting that Freud had to say about it. Yeah, it's funny that I've said that quite a bit, usually in the context of therapy, but when people say something about some new theory, I usually say, well, that's interesting. However, just about everything that's said about any kind of therapy, there's some kernel of something in Freud, and in addition to a lot of other topics. So, yeah, I, I totally get that. Uh, another question about di- digital presence. Uh, people uh-huh. just can't have um, print material these days. What are you doing uh, with that? Who do you have? Yes. Good question. So, so, um, you know, I almost, my initial suggestion when I applied for this job and met with the search committee and they wanted a proposal for how to reimagine TAP. So it wasn't, wasn't all my idea to, to reimagine it. Um, the, the, the search committee of the organization invited a reimagining of TAP and I've just, uh, you know, pitch them my vision and they, they, for better or worse, went with it. And, um, but when I pitched them my proposal, I actually suggested doing away with the print edition and going wholly digital because people, that's the way people really consume any, any kind of journalistic content. Um, so I thought, you know, save the money on printing and, plow it into the art and the content and the outreach. Um, because printing, especially printing an art magazine, it, it is it's not as cheap as, as one would like it to be. So, um, you know, after getting a little bit of feedback and that, that people like the print magazine, Melissa Overton also liked the idea of keeping a print magazine because it is a, it is a beautiful um, 
object that she and Austin have created. I mean, so it's, and it's nice to, I, I, as a writer, I, I always like to have a physical book as a reader. I like to have a physical book. So we, we decided to at least start with, to retain a print edition. Um, and, but we do have a website also. Um, and, um, you can that's t-a-p-o-r tap mag uh dot o-r-g t-a-p-o-m-a-g um dot org and um so uh you know i we hired a a, a web designer who has experience working with squarespace which is is sort of an off-the-shelf uh uh website building um app and platform and um she's she's done an amazing job with it um i think it it looks exactly as i had hoped and we um we are so we will be loading all of our content online right now it is uh primarily the content from our first issue content from the second issue and and the next one um will be will be posted and when it's posted um we then promote it on social media. Um, Michelle Rada, the uh, director of public affairs at, at uh, APSA has been great about um, boosting our our posts on social media to, to make the membership of the um, association aware of it. Um, and um, the idea in the long run is to use social media and perhaps certain other strategies like news aggregators getting um, some of our original journalism covered by mainstream media, possibly. Right. Um, but whatever publicity strategy we have, we we we'll, we'll put them together for individual articles, and then try to get interest in those individual articles that will bring people to the website and bring people to psychoanalysis as a topic. Um, the, you know, a lot of people as, as news consumption changes, a lot of people are, are consuming news through newsletters. Um, even though newsletter sounds like something old fashioned, you know, you, I'm sure you, you know, there's all these newsletters available digitally on Substack. Um, I have one actually. And you have your own one. I know I'm, I'm subscribed to it. Um, and, um, you know, I've watched the model of certain writers of, of newsletters and how they have been able to grab national attention, um, by getting coverage from mainstream media for some of their original reporting. And, um, so an example of that is Judd Legum, who, um, uh, I'm blanking on the name of his uh, popular information. It's the name of his his newsletter and his his Substack. And um, he, I I came across him on Twitter in 2020, shortly after the January 6th uh, insurrection, and he is the one that broke the story about the um, the corporations declaring that they had paused or or stopped donating to members of Congress who had objected to certifying the election results, which became a huge national story. It was his original, and he's got a very small staff. It's just him. I interviewed him for a, a art, an, an article I wrote for the, the Jewish Daily Forward a few years ago, and I learned about what how he works. He's, it's, it's him and one or two assistants does the lion's share of the, the reporting himself. And he, he and his assistant um, called... 80 or so, or I don't know how many it was, 80 to 100, 100 something companies, and just ask them, do you intend to continue to support these, these candidates who objected um, to the certification of the election and are, you know, essentially um, voting against democracy by having done that? And then this became a huge story, got picked up all over the place. And, and, and then many more people became aware of his his newsletter. My thought is that we could get some journalists to do some original um, 
muckraking reporting that could be of interest to mainstream media. You know, um, what I like about the the idea of newsletters and independent um, journalism is that you don't have to sit there and wait for mainstream the mainstream media to decide what to cover and if if psych, if the psychoanalytic community is going to sit around and wait for coverage in a passive way it's never going to happen um you know we, the, the the as as you know and as we've actually discussed and the last time i was on your your podcast um psychoanalysis has gone through a period of marginalization and has been kind of swept out of the national conversation in so many different ways. So to get back into that conversation where psychoanalysis, in my view, is desperately needed for so many different reasons, um, I think it it it's on us, it's on people that that have some understanding of psychoanalysis to try to influence the conversation and not wait, not passively wait for the media to choose uh, what to say. If Judd Legum had passively waited for somebody else to cover uh, January 6th, and he often talks about, about this, the mainstream media um, has certain narratives that they favor and and they don't look at other other narratives and so he he's all about looking at things that that the mainstream media are not necessarily talking about but ought to be in his view and he finds a way to make it into a story and um now granted writing about january 6th is a sexier story perhaps than, you know, writing about psychoanalysis, but psychoanalysis has so many connections to, and so many um, applications to so much that's going on that's topical in the world today. And, and furthermore, I think there's a lot of the story of why psychoanalysis has been marginalized and, and how it is making its comeback is a, is a story worth telling um, and trying to get people interested in. So, yeah, I, 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 you're, I, you're, I, as usual, I've left your question so far in the past. I can't remember what it, what it was, but hopefully I spoke oh, to it. You, uh, you answered plenty. Uh, uh, you, you also, I like that you're talking about bringing in so many other things. I mean, in this edition, you probably know all these things by heart, but uh, obviously, racism is something that's talked about or written about, a psychoanalysis and its discontent of gay patients' reflection. I mean, they're kind of pulling things from various places, which really is uh, society in general. So I think yeah. really it, good. Yeah, and, and, and thinking about what it means to... Uh, be a diverse population with minority perspectives and how to be sensitive to them, what it what how to empathize with them, how 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 to how to help uh, people coming from minority backgrounds when you're not of that background. All those things are so important in psychoanalysis. I think it, the conversation is 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 impoverished without a psychoanalytic perspective in in considering race and considering um prejudice and considering what it's like to grow up in the face of uh, prejudice well they selected the right editor that's for sure to get the message out there uh the new question um let's see we've talked about this before you used to feel pretty passionate about the fact that research was needed that it had to get on that track or yep could be a thing of the past are you still thinking in that way yes so one of the main um sections of the magazine i've kind of divided it up into some some rudimentary categories um research is is one of the main ones um i think we have research arts and culture education and we have a a, a category 
called Stories from Life, which is really hearing from patients, basically, telling about their struggles, telling about some some mental health, you know, struggle, some, and and then um, inviting some commentary from a, a psychoanalyst or a psychoanalytic psychologist to to give added um, context and perspective. Um, so the research section, yeah, I'm 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 committed to covering some um, s- some research related topic in every at least at least one article in every issue and so the first one was written by two researchers at Austin Riggs um and it was about the use of measurement based care at um in in a psychoanalytic inpatient setting and um the second one was an interview with Sheldon Solomon, who is a, a psychology professor at Skidmore, about his decades of research um, into death anxiety and defenses against it. Um, and this is, um, you know, what I, I, I'm I'm realistic about a an ambitious idealistic project. I I don't know whether I will succeed at at expanding the uh, scope of tap to to reach people beyond APSA. I hope I will. Um, I expect I will. I'm going to try as hard as I can, but it may not it may not work. But people do need to know that about the research that has been done and is being done to validate some of the core principles of psychoanalysis, because that narrative is still dominant out there. The counter narrative, which is completely false, that, quote, Freud has been discredited or or psychoanalysis is, you know, a thing of the past is is only of historical interest. And this stuff is repeated all the time. It's repeated by people who who consider themselves allies of of psychoanalysis. It's it's become a, a cultural meme. And one of the ways that I think it's important to kind of slow down the momentum of that meme of the, the replication of that meme and to change to change what is said about psychoanalysis is to is to call attention to the the work that has been done validating both its its uh theories and its therapeutic efficacy so um yeah i'm i'm absolutely devoted to publishing in every issue something about research that is being done has been done and is going to be done and then trying my best to call attention to it, um, you know, um, outside of, call call the attention of people outside of psychoanalysis and outside of APSA to, so that they can learn about it. One, one population of people I would love to get this magazine tap in front of is psychology students. I would love for them to be able to just browse through it, have some exposure to a psychoanalytic point of view and exposure to the evidence base for psychoanalytic ideas like defense mechanisms. And Sheldon Solomon has provided a a fantastic and very capacious, big uh, (laughs) evidence base for um, defense mechanisms with his social psychology studies that he's, that he's done over a period of now like 30 years. Um, I'd love I'd love for psychology students to know about that. And I, I think they'd be interested. And I think I think that they also might be open to the notion that their own professors have a particular point of view. And if it's it, and if it's a completely non psychoanalytic point of view, um, that might not be the final word. You know, I think students are interested in questioning and in, um, you know, um, regarding their own teachers and the, their, the institutions where they study with a little bit of skepticism. That's a healthy um, part of being a curious student. And um, psychoanalysis is still a young and revolutionary science. And I think it's, I think it's exciting for people once they 
once they once they 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 actually crack a book and see and see what you know Sigmund Freud had to really say and what current psychoanalysts are really doing and what they are really about. I mean, yeah, I just had another thought in terms of a population. A lot of people who go to uh, social work school and graduate end up doing analytic training, or at least a fair amount of candidates come from that background. So that might be another, like social work schools, that might... Absolutely. And that's so funny that you say that, because we have an article in the the forthcoming issue that is all about the history of social work and, and psychoanalysis. And actually, um, one of the, the implicit points of view of the writer of this article um, is, is that the American Psychoanalytic Association really needs to be more aggressive about um, inviting social workers into the organization. And I mean, social workers are, um, I, 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 the, the, the exact number, the exact percentage is, is cited in, in this forthcoming article. And I don't remember it, but a, Social workers do most of the the psychotherapy in this country. I mean, and um, I happen to have a soft spot for social workers. My my mom is a social worker. My grandmother, who you have heard about, um, was a social worker. My my aunt is a psychoanalyst and a social worker, and uh, so I was kind of raised by social workers. And I also I I. I love um, the the ethos of social work because they social workers know how to think about groups. It's part of their their training. They yeah. they, they know how to. They're not afraid to think about the application of psychoanalytic ideas to social problems, which is, you know, something that for a long time psychoanalysis did not do that much, you know, maybe, maybe in pockets, but sporadic and, and limited. And, um, and I also think that so many social workers that I encounter are, are so practical. Um, they, they, it, their jobs are often demand of them that they are looking for practical solutions. And, I think that this is a moment in the history of psychoanalysis to get real practical. It's a moment in the history of humanity to get real practical and think of some implementable psychological solutions to, to the problems that we face, so many of which are fundamentally psychological. Climate, I know, is of interest to you. And while climate is a meteorological problem, the solution is a psychological solution. Really? To get past the denial and also to um, figure out how to cooperate together and unite behind, um, you know, doing what we have to do to to keep our, our home planet safe to live on. Right. I also uh, do a podcast for uh, the Climate Psychology Alliance of North America, and um, they're into things like uh, eco grief, eco anxiety. So it all does tie in together. I, I have another article in the in the forthcoming issue that is about um, psychoanalytic solutions to to uh, the climate crisis. It's right. by it, it's by Alan Carbelnig. He's a he's a do you know him? He's he's uh, he, he's a, he's uh, in L.A. A psychoanalyst in a way. Well, to switch gears a little bit, but probably not really. Uh, I think you might remember that I have a passion for making one particular psychoanalytic concept uh, a household word, which is projective identification. It's it's uh, not me, it's you kind of idea, always blame shifting. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think, well, I continue with this, this, uh, passion because I think it applies to the problem with racism that's you know it is it's around the globe um populist global politics etc cetera, etc cetera. what other concepts in psychoanalysis do you think 
would speak to people in other fields? Mm. It, well, you know, certain psychoanalytic concepts are are already invoked all the time. And I mean, I just, during the Trump presidency, I watched, listened to Nancy Pelosi say he's projecting onto the Democrats, you know? I mean, she, she the, the, this stuff was, is, is, it's in circulation among lay people, even, even if it's not the, um, the current gospel of academic psychology, but, um, I, you know, and I and I think that that at this point, many people are familiar, maybe not with projective identification, but with the idea of projection at least. Yeah. Um, they're familiar with the idea of being defensive. Denial is, I mean, is in a headline every other day, um, and and it's really, I mean, denial is denial is always to me one of the the simplest ways of explaining to someone what psychoanalysis is about. Um, everyone's at this point kind of familiar with the concept of denial that somebody might not want to believe something that is anxiety provoking or unpleasant. And um, that's common sense to most people. And it's a really easy entry point into what in, into the whole idea of the unconscious and defense mechanisms. Um, so I always, I, I mean, I always find denial is already familiar to people and it's something that we all um, are, are extremely concerned about right now. I mean, you have climate denial, you had people denying medical facts during COVID. You have election denial. Um, and um, and you mentioned the interview that I did in, in my, my second issue with um, Philippe Copeland, who is a, um, a social, a professor of social work who talks about racism denial. Absolutely. Um, and um, so, you know, I, as soon as I came across his writing on racism denial, I thought I would love to have him in, in the magazine because um, there's an example of an application of psychoanalytic thinking about defenses to something so germane to what we're struggling with as a society. There's one thing that um, Copeland says that he said a lot of interesting things, but I was really struck by the fact that he said he thought a number of people would do things right, but they frequently don't know what that means or how to do it. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Well, he so he he has worked with the Center for Anti-Racist Research in educating people on how to how to deal with racism and and so you know one of his philosophies i i gather from having interviewed him and read his work is that um people require a certain amount of education about psychology to understand what racism racism is and and how to handle it how to handle um you know it when it might arise in oneself when it when they you see it in another person um it's not necessarily intuitive to um to know exactly what what to do we're we're you know we're saddled with the burden of as he as he says living in a society that is is scarred by a very toxic history of of racism that's been, um, you know, uh, incredible. I mean, we talked, he's African-American and we talked, we talked a lot of what we talked about focus on racism against African-Americans. Um, the, 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 the pain experienced by that community is so great and understanding, um, keeping in mind the pain of racism, I think, and, getting educated about how to talk to someone else who is in pain. Um, you know, I, I think that um, that's an example of 
the process of of getting educated around racism from a psychological perspective and it being useful in negotiating it. Um, I mean, he talks about, I think it's it's useful to be educated about the concept of, of denial because um, we're all inclined to not want to see ourselves as racist. So um, without the concept of, of denial, it's hard to get your head around the fact that you can mean well and you could still do certain things that are are racist <laughs> you know you could actually be you could actually act or say th- say things in a, that are that are racist even if you don't mean to and um, absolutely and 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 um so you know it's an invitation to introspection um to to which is i think incredibly important it's, it's empathy for for other people but also um, doing a little bit of introspection and what am I what am I feeling actually in this setting where something has happened that feels racial, you know, that feels like some type of what the what the uh, Holmes Commission calls a racial enactment. Yeah. Um, you know, when it feels like some kind of racial enactment is is going on, some some psychological forces related to race are influencing how we're interacting with each other in some setting. I mean, it happens all, it happens constantly. I, I think, I mean, I see it all the time. I, um, and um, of course, I mean, I, I see it from the perspective of a white person. So I, it's not, I don't have the burden of experiencing it from uh, the point of view of a, of a person of color. Um, but I just want to acknowledge that. Um but um yeah so so the question was i think about about how how dr copeland sees education in and, and, and i mean it's about emotional literacy i think and yeah. and absolutely i would think i was struck that he said people might do the right or he thinks people people would do the right thing if they knew how yeah well, yeah they don't know how yeah. And another another piece of that is also, I think, just feeling so helpless in the face of something so big. Um, and what he talks about is how how to work it out in a in a in a sort of local way, you know, like that what we we can have positive, a positive impact on the problem of racism just in our own relationships, you know. Um, and, and that's one of the things that I think he 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 really has a lot of of wise advice and and insights about how how to do that. Uh, in terms of uh, wise advice or thinking, I in the article that you wrote, uh, you say that diversity takes work, and I think it's so important. I mean, I you know that's definitely something that needs to be highlighted in, with yellow highlight or whatever color many many times because it's so important. It's not. Yeah, we we're going to have this course, and you know, now everybody is enlightened. It doesn't work that way. Uh, I wonder if you could, on that note, I wonder if you could say a little bit about the Holmes Commission report because people, you mentioned it, I don't, uh, people don't know what that is, and yet it's such an important piece of work. Yeah. So, um, I read the Holmes report, the final, um, the final version of the 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 report of the Holmes Commission, and what um, and Dorothy Holmes is a psychoanalyst in uh, I believe in D.C. Um, she chaired the commission. The commission um, looked at um, it look. I think it looked at the perception of race and race relations and racism in psychoanalytic institutes um it it i think it conducted i don't i i can't tell you off the top of my head exactly what their methodology was but i think it was it was um doing interviews and surveys and um yeah there was research definitely involved they did they did a huge amount of research and they had a lot of data um and then the and then the the writing of it it's a beautiful piece of writing i mean it's, it's like a rhetorically powerful document and says so many things that I think need to be part of the national conversation about race. Um, the What we touched on before about racial enactments, this idea 
that um, something suppressed feelings, suppressed on an individual basis, suppressed feelings about about race can burst out into action if they if they're if they're not acknowledged in your thinking, they can find their way out through action. Um, and 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 the Homes Commission talks about how that 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 happens on an individual level and on a cultural level too. Um, and so this this notion of enactments where unconscious racism, leads and and un, unconscious feelings about racism lead to um distortions of our corruptions of our actions with one another um and and um i i mean i think it's so important to be thinking about all of this in a psychoanalytic way and it's exactly what they're doing and i think that it's I think it's wonderful that, that I think it seems to me that APSA has done a good job of um, heralding the the Homes Commission report, but I really want people outside of, of APSA to know about it. I, I, I want people to see, look at the, the amazing work that is being done with a psychoanalytic lens, that, how indispensable these insights are to actually healing, to beginning to heal the wounds of racism, you know? Yeah, I, I, one thing I liked to the Homes Commission was there was something about, I don't have the exact quote, but a gateway to psychoanalytic understanding could really help people understand and then do something about or remove obstacles of systemic racism. I mean, to, I think uh, to see it and to stop it, that, that's pretty powerful, which is from the Homes Commission. Mm -hmm. So we have to open more windows so people can see what we have to offer. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I haven't, um, I, my assumption is that like, for example, Dr. Copeland, who I interviewed about uh, racism denial, I, my assumption is he probably doesn't know about the Holmes report. Yeah. And, I, and I want, I, I'm, I'm going, when, next time I talk to him, I'm, I'm going to make sure to say, Hey, you know, love to get your reaction to this. And, and um, so Open, that's part of the mission of TAP, in my view, is to open up dialogue between psychoanalytic practitioners and thinkers, and then um, people who who are are not not as formally identified with psychoanalysis, but may take a lot of interest in in these ideas. Well, as I recall, I think he's a university professor, right? So yeah, he's um, he, he, he's Boston. he. Maybe. Yeah, professor at Boston University. That yeah. that's where the Center for Anti-Racist Research yeah. uh, is housed. So people like um, Dr. Copeland are perfect people. But we want to get it uh, get interested in. And and the Center for Anti-Racist Research is also a very interesting place to me in terms of their attempt to shift a national conversation and the way that they go about trying to get their ideas across they they are they do a um a collaboration with the boston globe called the emancipator and it is essentially a magazine that you know like tap has um intellectual viewpoints and thinking about about race and racism and reporting from their point of view and then they um are working with the Boston Globe to get it out to people. Um, so that 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 is in a way an inspiration to me, um, a, an idea of how to take uh, a, a a group of ideas that that I want that I think need to get out in into the mainstream and then seek collaboration with people outside of psychoanalysis to get that message out. Well, now I have a very pragmatic um, question. The magazine is beautiful. Your goals and strategies sound fantastic. Um, it looks like a very sophisticated magazine with great material uh, and uh, with not a lot of advertising. What about fundraising? That's my question. Yes. So yeah, fundraising is 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 part of the uh, 
the plan uh, for sure. Um, we so far it we have had good support from APSA, so they are um, paying uh, a, a, a big chunk of our bills. Um, but it's also you know. Um, the people that I brought in, I have some some people who have really illustrious uh, careers in um, marketing and the arts, and they are working at way below their market value, and um, so that's you know what I've, I've heard referred to as low bono work. Um, as pro bono is free and low bono is for something, but at a lower rate, and um, so we absolutely need money i mean we we and we've begun to do some fundraising outreach but but we haven't really gotten started yet but but you know one thing that we do is we just make sure to communicate to the reader that we that this is a this is a not this is a nonprofit um enterprise and we and it's for a good cause and we need money to make it work and so so we have a donate button on uh, every article on the website and um and we have gotten some donations that way um the the idea is to do what the guardian does um it, where they let you know that's like we to to be an in, to be to 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 support to keep providing independent journalism, you know, we need, we need your support. Um, so, um, that's one strategy to, to raise money. And I, I would like to hold, hold some fundraisers and, great. and, and to find, um, you know, philanthropic, uh, donors to, to support what we're doing. And, um, you know, we really haven't begun to, it's been such a, a heavy lift to get this very ambitious project underway to change tap so drastically and to try to bring on so much content that that from so many different sources and it's 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 a lot to do all at once to have it the first website and then to do the first uh social media outreach and and the fundraising is is another thing that's on on the the you know on on my radar and on my plate. But um, so far, basically, we're just doing a little bit of begging for money on the on the website. Well, this is a good time of year for people to give to tap uh, or anything else since it's a tax deduction. So, yes, yeah. yes, yes. So, so if this were an NPR. Um, uh, what do they, what do they, what do they call it? They, they call it a telephone still. I don't know what the, where they ask for money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I humbly ask for your support. If you like what we're doing, we, we need the support. Yeah. Well, you're doing a terrific job. So I hope people get that message. Um, I know that you have something in Japa, I think, or you're going to. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say about that? It's a book. Um, it's a review of your book, right? Yes. The current issue of Japa has a review of my book, The Psychoanalyst's Aversion to Proof. Um, I I haven't read the review. Um, I know who wrote it. He, he um, Peter Rudnitsky, um, and um you know I, I i i i don't i haven't read it so i can't i can't comment on the review but i think it's i think it is uh a good i'm pleased that japa is paying attention to the book and the ideas in the book um i think that that is the important thing um i mean that book originated as a paper which i the first place i submitted it to was japa and I have to say, I've, I've never seen, uh, uh, I've never been, I've been rejected many, many times. I've never been rejected with that level of hostility. Um, the, the, I've never seen, I've never seen reviews like that. Um, so it's good to see that, that, that the, the, these ideas have prevailed um, in finally reaching the pages of Japa in some form. Well, you've ha you have a prize in, in literature, as I recall. So uh, 
what is the the prize that you was it for your last book the what before um oh i love talking about my my prizes because that makes me feel uh important so uh <laughs> even though even though prizes don't really make you important but um I won I won the the Roar Prize for Jewish literature in 2011 for my first novel The Jump Artist. That 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 is certainly the biggest um monetary prize I've ever won. Um it, it was a $100,000 uh, award and It's a great book. I mean, how you oh, how you wove in uh fiction with facts. It's it's I mean obviously there's an art to that, but it's it's beautifully written. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's kind of psycho history in a way. I mean, I don't know if that's the right word for it, but it is based on a true story um, about a real person, Philippe Halsman. Yeah. I've been telling people, I didn't use a, a shortened version uh, to, to go to the the website or to see this this uh, magazine that I keep talking about. It's the American Psychoanalyst uh, .org, I believe, right? Yeah, that works. Yeah. yeah. So I yeah. Yeah, you do the American psychoanalyst.org or tapmag.org. They both work. Great. So do you have anything else you'd like to share with people today? I don't think so, but I I love talking to you and um you're very gracious and very um you, you never put me on the hot seat and I, I appreciate that. Well, I just I want to reiterate you and your team have done a great job in reconceptualizing TAP. It was fine. It was a fine source of information before. Uh, I thought of it as an expanded newsletter in a way. Yes. This is art. <laughs> and well, thank you very much. I guess that is that is one one thing I'd like to to add is just that um I didn't in 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 announcing bold changes to tap and 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 expressing my enthusiasm for a bold new agenda with tap i i i have never meant to denigrate what came before at all um and i know that the that tap before i got to it um achieved some very important things in the history of the organization and um you know all due respect to um everyone who came before me and was doing that work on a totally volunteer basis while seeing patients and um uh and i've read I, I i wrote for the old tap and i've read amazing articles in the old tap so i i i certainly uh i don't want my enthusiasm for the new tap to be understood as any kind of denigration of the old tap i haven't heard anything that you said that would suggest that it's just a new day a, a new way of reaching people I mean, the idea of telling stories to get other people interested in other fields, I think is really important. I forgot that that's actually I, I didn't mention that, but that is also one of the main ideas about making the content accessible is always telling a story. I really I, as much as possible, always telling a story. Well, thank you very much. Uh, come back anytime. <laughs>